New York state politics notoriously corrupted. Samson is charged with embezzling mortgage money. Assemblyman Vito Lopez, he was censured for sexual harassment last week. Major corruption scandal involving New York's Governor Cuomo. Shirley Huntley admitted to setting up a sham nonprofit. Skeletons seem to just keep on coming out of the woodwork in New York state these days. You see the headlines every day. Hillary inches closer to announcing her run for president. Will Jeb Bush run? America has a love affair with political families, the Clintons, the Bushes, the Kennedys, the Roosevelts, and Rockefellers. I'm Nomi Konst, and this is the Accountability Podcast, the only show dedicated to specifically discussing the corruption plaguing New York. The public deserves the right to know what's happening, and we're here to present you with weekly reports. Today we are discussing the role of political dynasties in America, and whether this tradition is healthy or harms our democracy. We'll examine the history of dynasties in New York at the beginning of the show with political activist Bill Samuels, who also hails from a political family. Then we'll chat with journalist Gerson Borrero about modern-day dynastic families in New York. Are there regions and cultural communities that are more accepting of these families? But first, we urge you to learn more about our work at The Accountability Project by following us on Twitter at account underscore project and on Facebook at The Accountability Project. The Accountability Project is a journalistic organization that investigates political misconduct and corruption in New York. If you have a tip, something juicy about an area lawmaker, please call our tip line at 647-496-1897 and share your story of political corruption on our secure line. Bill Samuels is a successful businessman and CEO, high-tech entrepreneur, innovative political thinker and activist. His father, Howard Samuels, served as Secretary of Commerce under President Johnson and was director of the Small Business Association. Mr. Samuels also formed New Roosevelt Initiative and Effective NY, an independent expenditures concerned with New York's fiscal practices, ethics rules, redistricting policies, and campaign finance practices. Mr. Samuels has also toyed with the idea of running for state senate and lieutenant governor of New York. Thank you for coming to the Accountability Podcast. Welcome. Well, Nomi, this, your new project is very exciting. There's nothing more important than finally ousting the corruption that saturates uh, New York State. So I wish you luck, and uh, many of us will do everything to make you and your group uh, extremely successful. We greatly appreciate that. Uh, from the bottom of our hearts, you know, everybody on our team is incredibly dedicated to this project. So it's good to meet good people who, who are dedicated to the mm-hmm. same purposes. I would by no means think of myself as a family dynasty, but my mother was an elected official in upstate New York. My grandfather was in politics for 40 years on the Republican side in upstate New York. In fact, my great-great-grandfather in Greece was in politics. I wonder often, is it in my blood? Do you think that these dynasties come from the bloodline? Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, and I think they do. Uh, There's goods Good things about that and bad things. So let me ask you a question. Where in upstate New York were were you all from? Buffalo? Outside of Buffalo, Erie County. One of my favorites. (laughs) Thank you. So tell us about your father, Howard Samuels. Well, my father was from Rochester, New York, went to MIT, came home after World War II and founded a business. And at some point in the big, powerful Democratic powerhouse of Canandaigua, New York, and Ontario, they put him on the school board. And he loved that and got on a plane one day and came to New York and said, I'm going to run against Nelson Rockefeller. So uh, my dad was a wonderful man, very policy-oriented. Politics was very different then. I mean, we're going back to 1962. Mm -hmm. He ran for governor a number of times, and you should know that my college thesis was the growing power 
of the Democratic Party in upstate New York. Uh, whether I inherited that from him or not, I like to say no, because before he ran for office, I was president of my eighth grade class. <laughs> I was president of my college class. But anyway, clearly, many things I do in my mind are to honor him in the public service. I met with Wayne Barrett, the famed investigative reporter, uh, earlier today, and I told him about our podcast and who was coming on, and he said, oh, Howie the Horse. Tell us about that nickname. Well, what happened is, uh, after one of his uh, electoral defeats, he was the first Democrat to cross lines and endorse John Lindsay when Mm. John Lindsay ran as a Republican. After Lindsay got elected, uh, he appointed my father to start something called off-track betting. Mm which doesn't exist anymore. So that's how he got the name Howie the Horse. Because the betting was horse betting. Exactly. So what about your siblings? Are they involved in politics? Well, I would say that except for my brother, who I'm in business with, they're all very good Democrats. They give money. My sister is is a fundraiser for my organization. But I'm really the one that spends a significant amount of personal time on trying to make our state, in particular our legislature, the best in the country. Many of us know that uh, both Andrew Cuomo and, and Mario Cuomo served as governors. They have very different styles. And some say that Andrew has spent a lot of time, Governor Cuomo, uh, has spent a lot of time trying to differentiate himself from his father. Have you tried to differentiate yourself from your family? Hasn't even entered my mind. Uh, I would like to live up to my father's standards. But, but Cuomo is a different story. My father ran for governor and picked Mario Cuomo as a lieutenant governor. I know the family very well. I have no respect for Andrew Cuomo. Uh, He would not be governor if it weren't for his father's Mm -hmm. name. He's basically right of center. He has a personality like Nixon, vindictive. He does not have a soul of a progressive. His father had a soul. He had values and was very progressive, more like Bill de Blasio. You know what he thinks. Mm -hmm. Um, Andrew's an embarrassment, and I know that sounds hard, but the fact is uh, there's an example where having a family name has hurt this state because this state is ready to move forward progressively. Look what happened in New York City. And Andrew Cuomo has blocked it. He should think about being more like his father. Do you think that voters assumed that he was going to be more similar to his father? Absolutely. And if it weren't for the fact that he's had no opposition, he would not have gotten elected on his own because in New York City, we have small donor financing and you have all sorts of new people that can enter politics with no money. It's one of the most exciting times I've seen in New York City. In Andrew's case, he had he had name recognition. And if we'd had a strong candidate for governor that had money, he would have been defeated. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worked very closely with uh, the Working Families Party, Citizen Action, mm-hmm. two incredible groups mm-hmm. to try to force... Cuomo to switch from his alliance with Skelos, mm-hmm. and he did. And anyone that knows Andrew, the only way you get him to take a position is to attack him, <laughs> because he's a bully that if you hit hard, caves. He did it on the millionaire's tax, where he was going to cut $4 billion, and we attacked him, and he folded. And it's a shame that as in a Democrat in this state, we have to attack our own governor in order to be able to get the DREAM Act or campaign finance reform or other reforms that the voters are really for. Do you think that there are some families that really are still at odds with each other? I first think about the Bushes. George Bush, again, would not have been elected president if the name recognition from his father's term was not there. 
And I think that money in politics rewards family names. And it's not just at the national level or the gubernatorial level. You will see in the state senate and assembly elections a lot of family members getting elected that the voters don't even know who they are. Mm -hmm. That's why campaign finance reform and New York City's small donor program uh, levels the playing field. It means that if your dad was a state senator, you would have an opportunity to run against that person that had name recognition. We're speaking to Bill Samuels here at the Accountability Podcast. You know so much about Tammany Hall and New York State and New York City politics. Most people think that Tammany Hall, they associate it with corruption. But it was also very systematic. There were procedures in place. And, you know, you, you've elaborated on the pros and cons in previous conversations. The other aspects was that there were families that operated within Tammany Hall. And it, it was a place where several generations could rise up, at least until the early uh, 20th century, and create a name for themselves. And a lot of that is because the immigrants would come into New York, and that's where they got their start in politics. If Tammany Hall were to exist today, do you think that that model would still work? Yes, I'll tell you why. The key to Tammany Tammany Hall. Let's forget the corruption. We've got to throw that out. There are a lot of good Tammany Hall uh, leaders. Even DeSapio, the last one, was considered a, a decent human being. What Tammany Hall did was provide civic services to the community. And if there was a fire, they were the first there to help because they wanted the votes. If you study FDR's social programs, once he got elected president, a lot of them were modeled around Tammany Hall's commitment to providing local services before we had the ability to go to the city or the state and get welfare or get help, okay? So I think the model of the future, if we could figure out how to do it, is to find a way that between elections they can do good things for the community. The way you became a leader and Tammany Hall, and eventually became a governor like Smith, is that you ran a civic engagement project for your club, and you showed the members of the club that you could organize and that you did a good job. It's a wonderful model, and that's why I'm excited that you have adopted the Tammany Tiger because <laughs> it is a symbol of corruption, and that's what your group is going to play a major role, I hope, in doing. But it's a democratic symbol that is modeled after our firemen. It is our tiger, and uh, we're encouraging people to also say that we're going to be the tigers of the future, not the donkey. We're going to be aggressive and root out corruption. Mm -hmm. What do you think are the pros and cons of coming from a family with a long history of political involvement? Well, I think, uh, from my point of view, the pro is that even though my father's been dead 30 years, I can go to the Bronx and, or upstate, and I meet a lot of people that worked with him decades ago that were involved politically, and now they're 70 years old, and they're still going to their club, and they still care about this state, and they remember them. One that's very rewarding for me, but it certainly, certainly gives me a head start in terms of their impression of my commitment. Now, if I wait too much longer, there won't be any of them left. I get a lot of pleasure out of that, and I think that a family member that is brought up on a tradition of public service is a positive if the people that want to run against that person are given some ability to have money to level the playing field. Because what our listeners may or not may not know is that when you have name recognition, uh, you tend to get more establishment support because you don't have to spend as much money on getting your name out there. And as a new candidate 
who may be involved in the community but doesn't have family ties. A lot of these families have more money. Uh, they have institutional support. They have access to donors. It's it's much more difficult to enter. Even with public financing, it's still much more difficult. Absolutely correct. When you go to the national level, it's really different because as we have discussed, until 1972, presidentially, the conventions really made the decisions. You didn't have to go the primary route and have money. So you could have people... Uh, whether it be Smith or Stevenson, come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and and even if they didn't have big name recognition, in the last 10 weeks, they were going to get a lot of publicity. Today, the reason a Bush and maybe another Bush will be chosen, it takes so much money to go through the primary. If you have name recognition, a lot of very good people, maybe Martin O'Malley or someone like that from Maryland, it's very hard to get started. In the old days, whether it be in New York or nationally, uh, you didn't have to raise the money for TV. Do you think that it's healthy for Hillary Clinton, our own New York State, Hillary Clinton, to run unopposed, pretty much, the, the endorsed candidate of the Democratic Party? Do you think it's healthy for our democracy for her? Well, I, don't, I, I think generally uh, I don't think it's black and white in Hillary's case. And I think it would be good if she did not have major opposition. We've never had a woman as president. And I think that in of itself sends a message to voters and women and young girls all across the country. So I think it's I think she's a qualified candidate. She is more a moderate in the center. I'm uncomfortable with all the money and that she and Bill always are dealt with. But I think she'll be a good president. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to take the risk of her getting torn down and we end up with a Republican candidate and a Republican legislature. So in this case, if if she did not have a race, I would support that. I don't think it's bad. But normally competition is good. But in this case, wouldn't bother me at all. Which leads me to another question. You know, one of the, the, the moves of the parties now, mainly because of, of television ads and because races are so expensive, is they try very hard to eliminate primaries. It's not just about yes. raising money and name ID. It's, you know, we want to get our nominee out there starting to campaign early on. Yeah. Do you think that that era will end? The answer to that is it's got to end. and we got to figure out how to do it. An awful lot of good people that really are interested in public service, they just don't run because it is grueling. Uh, they get bored dialing for dollars. Right. They want to work on the issues. They want to talk uh, in meetings with interesting people. It's horrendous. Mm-hmm. And not that I'm going to go into it a lot, but until 1970 in New York, qualitative research on issues was much more important because you didn't need as much money for a whole bunch of reasons that we can go into at another time. Uh, my own my own view is that we must attack the problem, which is television. Uh-huh. There's not a 30-second ad, whether it's good or bad, that isn't really resented by a lot of people because it's superficial. Right. And either we have to go to a system where we can figure out how to limit the amount of television or it's we require a longer form. It needs radical thinking. It's the TV money that's at the heart exactly. of the problem. It's going to take a lot of work to figure that out, but uh, we got to do it. I will give you something that maybe we're – listen, it's my theory and I've had it for a long time and I've written about it, so no one steal it from me. But if you want to solve it and work with me on it, <laughs> you know, call me up. You know, I ran for Congress and the average con- congressional campaign is $1.2 million. And when you really look at the budgets, it is going to TV. It's going to consultants yep. who are building your message, buying um, ad spots, you know, producing the television ads, which aren't always that great. 
All of these things, number one, can be done cheaper, but even more so, everyone's got a DVR nowadays. Everybody is, you know, I don't even have cable. I'm a millennial. So most people my age who are now reaching their mid-30s are not even watching cable or television. And those who are under 60 are DVRing through the ads. So they're not even hitting the voters that they need to hit. It's this ginormous waste of money. If you really want to get to the heart of it, I mean, with Congress, why are we spending all this money raising the money that's You've stated it exactly, and the internet and streaming is one of the keys. But if I had to make a specific suggestion, okay, I would remind people that cable has to go to every city to get a license. And I would require cities that give licenses and national that give uh, license to the broadcast to require a certain amount of absolute free time. And in terms of the FCC and Internet regulation, that there be a certain amount of free time, you know, if you're a qualified candidate or what that is, and, and rip the cost right out of it. Right. And if you do that, changes the lifestyle of the politician and it's more enjoyable to run for office as a result. Fascinating. Well, Bill Samuels, thank you very much for joining us today on the Accountability Podcast. Do you have a Twitter handle, a website? How can you we can reach go you? to effectivenny.com or .org. And I want to close with saying this new project of yours is going to be hugely successful. <laughs> I urge everyone out there to join up and get rid of corruption in New York. Thank you very much. Gerson Borrero is a political commentator at New York One and New York Noticias, right. <laughs> columnist and host of City and State, the editor of the Rota Somos, covers political rundown on Inside City Hall, and he's the former editor-in-chief of El Diario La Prensa. There you <laughs> go. <York>. Hey! <laughs> New York City's largest and oldest Spanish-language newspaper. Welcome to the Accountability Project, Mr. Muchas Borrero. gracias. Me agrada tanto estar aquí contigo. Look at her. She's turning your... She's, she's going to cry now if we do this in Spanish. I can't believe I once lived in Mexico and my Spanish is terrible. But, you know, it's I figure right. I can fake an accent and get away with well, it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a permanent member of AA, uh, which is, yeah, I am. I'm a recovering a accent accent anonymous. <laughs> I can't get rid of it. So don't worry about it. It's We're in New York, you know. what? Yeah, you know, so. I live on the Lower East Side, so I'm oh my either God. like Jewish or I'm I'm Latina, and I'm like no, I'm Greek, but everybody speaks to me in like so many different dialects. Oh, exactly. and, and then they go coño, you know. So it's like you got to figure it out. I well, know. thank you for having me. I, it's thank a pleasure to be here. On. We're talking about political dynasties. One of the fascinating things as we look at the map is that there is a there's quite a few dynastic families in certain regions of New York City, and you cover the Bronx. You've covered Latino districts. Um, all throughout New York. Is this a cultural phenomenon? Well, you know, for a minute there, I thought you were talking about the Kennedys or the Clintons right. or maybe the Bushes. Uh, but, okay, we're back to uh, the reality. <laughs> look, the, the re look, we have a community, that being the Puerto Rican Latino community. Uh, the Por Puerto Ricans have, were here before anyone else. We come here, the difference between Puerto Ricans and all the Latinos are our brothers and sisters from the Caribbean, from Central and South America, is that we have an advantage. We're forced to be U.S. citizens mm -hmm. in 1917, so we come here anytime we want to get out of Puerto Rico, either via Aguadilla or Ponce or San Juan, and we automatically can register and vote. Having said that, we're still a very underdeveloped community, so we have people who, as a result of struggles from the 60s and 70s, 
found that politics, the body politics of New York City could serve them. The bulk of those people were, in fact, in the Bronx, the borough of the Bronx, which is interesting because the Bronx developed into this Puerto Rican enclave that really isn't the way it was supposed to be. Just quickly, Puerto Ricans came into New York City through Brooklyn, near huh. the Brooklyn Navy Yard. We settled in different areas. Before the hipsters were hip to <laughs> taking over Brooklyn, we took over Brooklyn and we dominated a lot of uh, neighborhoods. We came in theme boats, whatever it is that they had. And so there, there were the Marine Tiger, the Ponce, there was another one from South Carolina. So we came in busloads. Once uh, 1917 came around, there were problems in Puerto Rico, economic problems. So we came in, we settled in Brooklyn because it was close to the Brooklyn Navy Yards. Though I wasn't on one of those ships. Don't be looking at me. I'm not that old. <laughs> but I see that you're saying, wow, he knows too much about this. But it, anyway, it wound up that we settled there. So Brooklyn should have, in fact, had the Puerto Rican power uh, base of not only the numbers, but rather the political uh, mollero. Mollero means muscle in okay. Spanish. It's M-O-L-L-E-R-O. This is a Spanish class for all you people that are trying to be, <laughs> you know, into something. We're going to take over anyway. But 2016. But 2016. It's... It, the fact is that you have so-called dynasties, which really are not based on the traditional power forces that we see, like the Kennedy right. clan, who are multimillionaires, mm -hmm. or even the Clintons, who are very astute and very political savvy and have access to money, are now millionaires, or even the Bushes, mm -hmm. who have that tradition in their family and, you know, and have produced all these people. So we have Riveras, uh, Jose Rivera, his, his son, uh, Joel Rivera, mm -hmm. uh, we had Naomi Rivera. Um, uh, Gustavo Rivera is not his son, the state senator. Really? No, it is not. I just He's not. so. No, you assume so. <laughs> well, they all they all sound alike. They, they all, all claim. look alike. They, you know, what can they reproduce? So, but the fact is that you have, for example, Rivera, Jose Rivera, who has served in the city council. He served in the mm -hmm. state legislature. He just won his reelection by okay. fantastic numbers, and he's seventy-eight years old. You know, they're going to have to measure the coffin and, you know, once he's, you know, they're going to have to say, hey, you're dead. We're going to bury you. But he probably won't quit. You know, and he'll still be on the ballot. He'll still be on the ballot. And, you know, people will like them. And then you have the Diaz, you know, but but it's interesting because the Diaz is supposed to be if you have a dynasty and you describe it as such. In the case of Rivera, he was first. He brought in his kids. But it was other politicians that told him to bring in his kids. And, of course, hey, my kid could use a job. <laughs> you know, what can I tell you? And so, that's really how it started in the old days of Tammany Hall. Of course. The, like, so why my should cousin we, needs a gig. So why should we not learn from the best? But I, I don't say I, I'm agreeing with that. But in the case, for example, of Diaz, Ruben Diaz, right. the father, mm -hmm. who I call Lucifer because of the ways, his really bad ways. And uh, he's in competition with the devil. And his son, Rubencito, who is Ruben Diaz Jr., uh, Ruben Diaz Jr. was actually elected before his father. He was the one that brought his father into politics. Mm -hmm. uh, At so, 24? Yes, he was a, He was very young, and he still. I still think he's green behind the ears, but what, that's my opinion. But you have this situation where State Senator Ruben Diaz, mm -hmm. who's a political power force, if he could, I'm telling you, he would bring his grandchildren. But the only son that he has in power actually was elected before him, which is Bronxboro President Ruben Diaz mm -hmm. Jr., who some people think of as a potential mayoral candidate. I don't think it will be. Then you have the Carmen Arroyo mm -hmm. and her daughter, Maria del Carmen Arroyo. Carmen Arroyo is serving in, in the assembly, who's also, she's past 80, and or close to 80. I'm sorry, Carmen, what can I tell you? <laughs> uh, and in the case of Maria del Carmen Arroyo, who you have a person in the city council who will be term limited out. 
So you have these people, and when you look at it, they really aren't dynasties because there's no other family that has that, or they don't have the same power to build a political base. Why is that? Because we don't have, one, the resources. The, we don't build enough capital. We don't have millionaires sponsoring us. Uh, we become, we're actually living on a plantation in, in the Bronx in which we are the majority. This is like an apartheid situation in which the majority of the Bronx is minority. Look, uh, you got to point out the fact that the state assembly delegation and the state senate also, who's controlling it? Jeff Klein right. and, and, and Senor Dinowitz. So it's it just like weird to me that people talk and point out to the fact that Puerto Ricans are in control. We're not. Right. Uh, we're still, you know, subservient to these other political forces and powers. And they put, they give us certain positions. So the Bronx, for example, when you talk about political power, political dynasties, there are 62 counties. So each party, mm -hmm. the Republicans and Democrats, the Democrats being the party of, of Puerto Ricans. We don't have in any of those 62 counties not one Puerto Rican state chairman. In other words, the Bronx only had two. There's been no other Puerto Rican or Latino to head an actual Democratic County organization other than Roberto Ramirez and Jose Rivera. We're here with Gerson Barrero. Muy bien. Thank you. Uh, and we're talking about political dynasties in the Bronx right now. An interesting thing that we found out about the Bronx was that of the 16 Latino elected officials in the Bronx, which includes state Senator Serrano, whose district is largely in Manhattan, nine of them, or 56 percent, are Puerto Rican. Right. And, and, and that will remain so. Again, I point back to what I originally said in the opening statement, that we come here, even if we come from Puerto Rico in its first generation, that to reside here, we come as U.S. citizens. So it's a little bit easier for us. We're also, uh, the, the English is being taught to us because of the relationship of a commonwealth or a colony of the United States, which Puerto right. Rico is. So that accounts for that. Jose Marco Serrano, who is the state mm -hmm. senator, is the son of Jose Enrique Serrano, who was born in Mayaguez. His son was born here in New York City. But but that points, talk about, they would like to develop a dynasty. Right. Uh, the assumption is that uh, Ser Jose Serrano, Joe Serrano will probably, he's getting older and older. We all do that. You know, uh, father time or mother, you know, tiempo will actually take care of that. And, and he, there's all kinds of talk. Uh, that Congressman Serrano, who's afraid of his shadow, if they say primary, he starts, you know, mm -hmm. he gets all nervous because he wants to hold the seat for his son. That's what's being said. That remains to be seen. There are other forces that come into play from within the Puerto Rican community or even from other communities that are beginning. Dominicans are very ambitious. They have a right to get on the platform, to have to elect their first Congress member. So far, they haven't been successful in the person of Espaillat. And, and it's interesting because Dominicans have not been here long enough to be able to develop even any appearance of a dynasty. The closest was Guillermo Linares with his daughter, that eventually, uh, Myra Linares, who eventually, who works for Governor Cuomo right now in, in the State Department, she may in fact be the first one to have a father-daughter team. But it hasn't happened, Those what you're referring to as dynasty. But I still point to the fact that politics in the United States, in the Bronx, no exception, in New York City, is all based on money. It's turned into a business. It's, it's turned into, you know, this, this real profitable industry for people who engage in consulting and, you know, exactly. numbers experts and, you know, I'll win the election, petition gather, uh, gatherers and all of that, doing it the right with the archaic laws that we have in, in New York State. But, you know, you know, one of the things you allude to is that th these races are more expensive. And, you know, if you're running for state Senate, you have to raise usually around 150000 and up. 
And these districts, a lot of these candidates don't come from wealthy districts. They do not. Is it easier to run somebody who has family name recognition, even if the family isn't as wealthy as a Kennedy family, even the Manhattan-based uh, families that have legacies and can really build an institution of family support, I guess you could say, with all of their rich supporters? Is it easier for them, for the local parties, to run some with, with name ID rather than bring in a, a clear primary? Are they making these decisions based on running cheaper campaigns? There's, there's, a, there's two you know, sides to that blade, and it cuts both ways. Because, in fact, if you were a community activist with some name recognition, by the way, Rivera is one of the most popular mm-hmm. uh, last names, surnames that you can have. Rivera is very well known, identify many Latinos, and it's not only Puerto Ricans. But what you have is that any local race and any, you know, anybody with half a brain about what politics is, you don't need uh, in a city council race. The reason that the amount is comfortable, 150, 200,000 or even the assembly or the Senate, the state assembly, state Senate, is you really don't need to do a television or radio. You do the ground work. You do the actual, you know, leafleting. You do the door-to-door. You do the mailings. And and that's less expensive. So other than, you know, running like Mm -hmm. borough-wide or running or if you want to be your name to be known or citywide, then you need uh, mucho dinero. And, you know, you need the big bucks. But right now, I think that there's – it offers an opportunity. I'm, I'm just perplexed about the fact that what really is an impediment to having more people come in is one term limits, which these guys have across. I was just going to ask you about that. <laughs> well, term limits is something I've always right. felt that term limits should be, you know, for me, we should have term limits for the president. If it were up to me, I would change the presidency so that it's only one term, six years, and get the fool out of there because they don't do it. Eight years for what? They don't do anything the first year. They don't do it in, anything in the last year of the, because they're running for re-election. And it goes on and on. So we actually get, if we got six years, maybe five good years of any president that we could change. But that's me. You know, I would change all of that. I think term limits, you have, you get eight years. I would do the Congress also limited to six terms of two years each. Senators, no more than two terms. That's six years apart. So 12 years and get out of here. This is not supposed to be a career. A lot of people, by the way, which is a lot of the people that you see elected, and I'll talk about Puerto Ricans and blacks and, and other people, minorities, they see this as a way out of poverty, if you will. This is a pretty good exactly. gig. And they pay you to, I mean, you go Health up to benefits. Albany. You got $79,000 as a salary. Part-time job. A part-time job. But then they pay you. I don't know about you, but nobody paid me to come here. I mean, $180 they give you as a stipend um, per day. I know of people who shall remain nameless here who actually, you know, their wives or their spouses or their partners, their better halves, they actually count on that money. So for many huh. people who are don't have the formal education, and you'll find many of them, not only in the Latino Puerto Rican community, that they actually have this as a way to establish themselves in the working middle class. I lived in California for some time, and in California... We won't hold that against you. We won't hold it against me. That's right. where I picked up my spotty Spanish. Okay. <laughs> so they have term limits there. Right. And, you know, one of the criticisms they have, you run for re- you run for election, you're termed out, you move to another district, or you move to another seat, and you run for, you're an assembly person, and now you're a state senator. And that, they just basically position hop. 
how is that going to help these communities where they already want to bring in their next family member? So if there's term limits and I'm state senator Rivera and I'm termed out and I'm going to go run for assembly now and then my son is going to come and run in my place, isn't it just like, you know, musical chairs? It it may be, but you're shaking up that chair. You're Mm -hmm. making them, they can't get comfortable. They have to go back to the voters, to the electorate to say, this is the reason why. And I think... You know, elections are very interesting because in the process, either people get hip to what they're doing. They say, wait a minute, man, you've had your chance. You're just coming over here to, you know, pick our pocket on this side. So you have that switching chairs and the musical chairs, if you will. But that's part of the flaws of the democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the New York City Council term limited. They found a way to do it. Even when we uh, uh, when people voted in two charter revision elections to say we're going to term limit the mayor and the citywide offices, you see what uh, Miguelito Bloomberg actually did. <laughs> I so, love that Twitter handle, by the way. I damn Miguelito Bloomberg. <laughs> was that you? El Bloomberg. No, that was that was Rachel. Uh, that that was Rachel Rodriguez, who was a Jew, Jew Rican. She's a Puerto Rican Jew or a Jew Puerto Rican. But that's what you get in New York. But seriously, I think that at least you make them uncomfortable enough so that they cannot become so complacent, at least in the city council, that they have to go back to the voters and really be afraid, which I think a lot of them is. I would term limit everybody. You know, two terms and that would be it. Uh, if you have a two-year, I mean, who can actually work if you got to run every other year? Right. I mean, I mean, it's and you're fundraising and, and you're, you're hiring fundraising, consultants exactly. and it's exactly. a whole, it's a whole system. Exactly. You know, it's not just that you're, you're the politician is busy not actually analyzing policy and proposing laws, but they're also involved in this mini industry. There's an industry around the politician. And 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 you can actually have part-time work part-time. and actually do it. So I think that there's there there's so many flaws in the system. And I think voters have to, you know, there should be a way to change it. They should, the Democratic Party should really hold itself accountable. They're not going to do that. Uh, talk about political dynasties. What about the Cuomos? You know, so we have, again, a person who, I mean, this is the first we're seeing at that level in terms of modern times of the Cuomos. And it's almost, you know, identical styles to a degree. And, and I don't think that's good for a democracy. And, 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 and a person being so arrogant, as in the case of Andrew, I've known Andrew and covered him since he was with his father. We're almost the same age. I still think he's a nice person, nice man. He's a terrific father. Has his, He's a great father. He has three daughters. We've talked about that. But the fact is, he's still a politician. And there's something that happens, whether you're Puerto Rican, you're black, you're Irish, you're Italian, whatever you are, if you're from the moon. You, once you go into that elective office and you get that thing going, it's, they become so enamored by the office and the title and surrounded the power. by yes man. By yes man, you think Miguelito Bloomberg, with billionaire, wanted to be mayor? He just, no matter how much money he's got, he couldn't. He had to buy his third term because he could not get. You know, he had a thirty-five thousand uh, uh, person police force. I mean, at his, at his calling. Uh, he can't buy that. He had the, you know, the things that he could do in the city, the things he did for his mm-hmm. friends that are billionaires. So all of those things, the trappings of office are the same for everyone. We just happen to have uh, less ambitious uh, <laughs> or, or, or more modest uh, ways of, of, you know, just latching on like leeches to the system. We're just, you know, when you talk, how can you even talk about Puerto Rican political dynasties where we're not even, we don't even, sometimes we get the crumbs or these guys get the crumbs from the table. You got big boys in this state and in the city that are really picking the pockets of, of, of the electorate. Okay, so 10 years from now, where do you see the Latino communities, all of them, 
across New York City? What do you see their, their role in us? That's government? an easy question for me to answer. I say that there isn't going to be in my lifetime, and I hope to live a lot longer, but it'll take 25 to 30 years still mm-hmm. before we see a Latina or a Latino. I predict that it will be a woman and it'll probably be a Mexican woman who actually becomes the first mayor of New York City. It will not be a Puerto Rican because it's just too much infighting. So I'm, I'm basing that prediction. And, and, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not a magician. Just based on what I see right now, that they will come in a group of Mexicans. They will organize. They will, and we will not. Uh, there's too much infighting. Right. Uh, and, and uh, I mean, the best candidate people talk about is Rubencito, Ruben Diaz Jr. He, I, I don't think he's even, you know, he's finding his way still in the Bronx. Uh, I don't think he's ready for that to be on that stage. Freddie Ferrer got pretty close. Mm-hmm. He, it was almost, you know, a kamikaze kind of election. Uh, in 2005, going against the mayor, he was courageous, but he fell short, and he wasn't really such a great candidate. Right. So that was a first. Herman Badillo, way back, if you go back to decades, the, the Democratic Party, actually, he was very well qualified, an attorney and a, a CPA, a person of great intelligence. I didn't agree with his politics, but that set aside, who am I? The, the fact is that we're a long way off. I don't think that there will be a Puerto Rican mayor. I think that there will be, or a Dominican mayor, I think it will be a Mexican uh, person, and I think it'll be a woman who may be 25 to 30 years from now. Fascinating. I think that person may be uh, just in high school finishing up and going into college. Well, seriously. I know. He says, what is this guy talking about? No, no we have it on I the record here. I did not smoke anything. Someday we'll be going back <laughs> into the archives and we'll know that you predicted this. Well, I hope. And I hope, it's, and I hope that it's a qualified person and that we can all be proud of her or him. Fascinating conversation. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you for joining us. La próxima vez hablamos español. Last time I speak to you in Spanish. No, no, no. no next time. Next time. So oh, la próxima is next time. Okay. Sí, sí, adiós, goodbye. <laughs> Arrivederci. <laughs> adiós. Adiós. Okay. Gracias. Muchas gracias. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks again for joining us on another episode of the Accountability Podcast. Special thanks to our guests, Bill Samuels, Gerson Borrero, as well as our producer, Andrew Tint, Dina Ragab, and David Chizik, as well as the Accountability Project team and all of our donors. It's not always campaign season in New York, but it is always corruption season. I'm Nomi Konst. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week.